if it, let's say you disagreed with me, you'd say why. And uh, if, it, if it made sense, we'd like air our differences publicly on, on the substance of it. Like what happens when Tony Fauci does this is it sends, you're absolutely right, it sends a signal to all the other scientists in biomedicine that if you step out of line, you know, if uh, Tony Fauci says, I am the science, you know, if, if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with science itself. If you step out of line, your career is at stake. You don't, you don't want every crank idea, but this was not a crank idea. These were prominent people in respected institutions stay saying, look, this is this policy's wrong. Welcome to this week's episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring my friend, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University, a renowned scientist, epidemiologist, economist, MD, PhD, polymath, and really one of the highest quality human beings I've ever had the opportunity to meet and spend time with and now finally interview. He's well known for his contribution to the so-called Great Barrington Declaration, which has been signed by over a million people as of the time I'm recording this. Plus, that includes about 17 to 20,000 medical professionals. And it really presaged the moment we find ourselves now in with COVID, that the lockdowns were counterproductive. And I think that's been proven to be clear. Jay was never against vaccines. He's a huge vaccine supporter. He's vaccinated his kids, his parents. But he was really against this notion that we could achieve any end to the pandemic without herd immunity. That's how all viruses, pandemics come to an end. And we're really never going to get rid of COVID-19 per se, just as we've never gotten rid of the flu. And to try to prevent future lockdowns and the scenarios that ensued from the pandemic, Jay has a lot of cautionary ideas to share. And you hear that in this interview. You also will hear how he was horribly mistreated by some of the most powerful human beings on earth, two men in particular, Francis Collins of the NIH, and Anthony Fauci, famous Dr. Anthony Fauci, held as a saint by some, a villain by others. You'll make of it what you will after you hear this episode. You'll want to watch it too, because Jay shared some slides that he shared with me when we were in a beautiful location in Florence. We actually got to tour the villa of Galileo Galilei, who was imprisoned, as you know, in the final years of his life by the Inquisition. And this episode is called A Scientific Inquisition, but I was originally going to call it I Told You So. But, um, but that would be distemperate, not in my normal state of gravitas. So I do hope you'll enjoy this episode, and it's brought to you with minimal commercial interruptions. And I think you will also enjoy subscribing to my YouTube channel where the video of this episode is displayed. Because the visuals that you'll want to really take into heart and just imagine yourself in the same exact position. And I don't think that any of us would want to be in this position. So it takes a lot of courage to do what Jay has done, and that's my mission on the Into the Impossible podcast. I know some of you will find some of the political aspects of this podcast uh, offensive or maybe uh, disruptive, but to that I say I don't care. You guys can go ahead and unfollow, unsubscribe, unlike, send me a negative review, uh, do whatever you want. It's up to you. I don't care. I am here bringing truth and speaking hopefully truth to power. And it's really by virtue of the guests that I get on this podcast. So I hope you'll enjoy it. If you don't, um, keep it to yourself or send me some constructive criticism. That I always appreciate. Doesn't always have to be a five-star review, as I always ask for. But for now, no more intro as we go into the impossible with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to a special conversation. 
with someone I've admired for a very long time, uh, both for his intellect uh, and his uh, perspicacity and all the things that he does, but but ever more so since he's taken such a courageous stand in our public uh, discourse around the COVID-19 pandemic, um, creating, uh, co-authoring the 2020 Great Barrington Declaration, doing many, many other uh, prescient things that are now only now being recognized by the wider audience. We'll get into that and some of the controversy that is still swirling around. But uh, but this is uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of medicine, economics, and health research policy at Stanford University and the director of Stanford's Center for Demography and Economics of health and aging you really couldn't design better you know jay if 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 they had like a lab where they could design things you know for gain of function purposes i mean i really feel like you're one of the you know kind of um well uh, for lack of a better word of redundancy most unique i hate that phrase but it but it really applies here you're, you've got this incredible blend of in, raw intellectual horsepower um you know just ability to ignite but but be uh, do so with grace, with humility, um, and with uh, with many great qualities. So it was an honor to meet you. Finally, uh, we were together about a month ago in uh, in Italy, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the side trips we got to take. But uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you for joining me on the Into the Impossible podcast. Ryan, thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, I have to say, like most of my career, I wondered what the heck I was doing because I didn't know what the particular combination of things I was interested in would really apply to until the pandemic. Like it, then, then it sort of became a little more clear. To to me, uh, you know, to, to it caused some some uh, some uproar in my life, but uh, thank you for that. Yeah, and I, I always think you know the the rarest of all the human qualities is to is to be courageous, and especially so when so much is at risk, and and to do so with no expectation going in and no remuneration thereof, and in fact probably quite potentially ruinous for 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 people. So to take on the courage that you did, uh, and I want to get into uh, because I am you know a practicing Jew as you know, and, and you're a practicing Christian. I wonder you. Know, if our worldviews, you know, which are different theologically, but not uh, in terms of our of our practice, I think. Um, do you think your your faith played a role, you know, from the from the outset in the mission that you undertook? And and we're not, you know, my audience is not, you know, so keen to to be. We're not going to proselytize. Don't worry out there in the into the empire. You know, I won't do that. But but the point being. Uh, do you think it guided you? Do you think uh, the, that it sustained you during the, the controversy that we're going to speak about? I, mean, I, I, I take my faith seriously, as you know, Brian. I know you do, too. Um, and I found common cause with people, basically, of no matter what religion, who take their faith seriously. Um, and I, I can't say, like, in terms of the scientific work, it didn't it didn't say, you know, find some result or this, this or that result. It, it's, I mean, science is science, and you, you apply the standards of science to it, uh, I think. Um, and and I, I try to do that. But in terms of, I mean, I felt like I've had to speak out in, and, and my faith, one of the main core components for me is this, this desire to speak for the poor, to, 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 to uh, work if I can to make the lives of the poor better. Um, and especially in, in health policy, it's a, it's a place where, uh, where, you know, people's fundamental values uh, about about what 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 happens in their life, their 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 health, their well being, um, how that's distributed in society. That it's those are like absolutely fundamental topics in health policy. And, and for me, it's uh, my faith is is part of that. I mean, it's part of like why I care about this topic so much because I I, I think that what's happened during the pandemic, the pandemic policies followed, have been absolutely devastating to the lives of the poor, to children, to vulnerable people, and that's that is definitely has driven me. Yeah, and looking looking at the. Um 
at the you know kind of uh, mentality of of our fellow citizens and how they react to uh, not just the pandemic but the lockdown I think was the significant contribution of course you're a medical doctor you have unique insight into the most vulnerable population but but it was really you know people talk, call it well because of covid we had x y or z uh, but really it was the effects of the pandemic lockdown not the pandemic itself that really drew your most of your attention and and actually where I think you made tremendous contributions, which may only be recognized, you know, decades from now um, and in the prevention of similar mistakes. But uh, but, I, I, you know, you don't have to react to that. But but I, I did want to, you know, kind of when I met you and we, we spent some time together, you know, I was reminded of a uh, of another of another prophet uh, with the name uh, starting with the name J, the letter J, and that's uh, Jer Jeremiah. Um, and and I wonder, how do you reconcile, you know, some of his famous quotes? I mean, of course, there's a famous one that people like to bring out from abortion debates, which we're not going to get into here. Uh, Jay, we can get into abortion, gun control, COVID, <laughs> however many controversial yeah, topics you want to hit. Let's, but let's, I, let's, I don't really want to hit controversy, Brian. <laughs> yeah, let's, 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 uh, let's, let's play it a little safe. But, but of course, famous quote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Um, does any uh, of the biblical you know, verses, not, not again, I don't want to talk about abortion per se, but, but um, does it give to you, as it does to me, perhaps, uh, a, a notion that every life is sacred, even our enemies, even those that, that hate us and do vile things to us, um, that every life is sacred? And again, we're not talking about abortion right now. I mean, we, we should talk about that some other time. But, but does that guide you as a doctor, uh, as, a, as, as you know, a theologically inclined person? Or can you divorce you know, being your, your scientific attributes from your religious attributes? Well, I, I think, um, I mean, I love that quote, uh, not, 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 not particularly because it has a controversial link to abortion, but because it, it gives this sense that um, we are each of us created with a purpose, um, that we have are given our, our gifts for a reason. They're not just for ourselves. Um, and I think that that, 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 uh, that, that I, I love that because that, that idea that uh, we're all made in God's image, uh, that means I have to treat you like you're made in God's image with respect and with dignity um, and, and help you with your purpose. I mean, I love that. I love that idea. And it has, it has animated my work uh, It animated how I try to treat each other. It's been really difficult during pandemic. I've, I've made a lot of enemies, unfortunately, uh, not, not intentionally, but just by my ideas. Um, and I've had to work very hard to, to, under, to remember that even they um, are made in God's image of people that, that are worthy of respect, of, of, worthy of dignity and to, and to work to forgive them, even if they've harmed me. Um, I mean, those are like personal attributes. Uh, I think in science, we have an obligation to speak what we see as the truth, uh, you know, based on our work to the best of our abilities to correct ourselves when we, when we get it wrong um, and to, and to, and to uh, treat each other with, with dignity and respect, even if we disagree. Um, that, that quote from Jeremiah, I think, is, I love that because I think it, it underlies a lot of that kind of ethic. Um, and I've tried to live that as best I can. And his other quote, uh, of course, that I love to you know trot out at faculty meetings is uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, so, uh, you know, he's famous for these Jeremiads where we get the name Jeremiah, which is kind of a clarion call, a warning. Um, you know, I've written a little bit about that and completely uh, uncourageous stance compared to you just with regards well, there's, to. Uh, there's this Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote, which is probably my very favorite thing. Yeah. Uh, favorite quote is this. Uh, he, I think he gave it a speech at Harvard. Uh, so, you know, Solzhenitsyn, of course, the 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 uh, the. Um, Soviet dissident who uh, wrote okay. the Gulag Archipelago. He said, he, he, he said uh, look, the, the line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. 
Yeah. There is no purely good and purely evil people. We're all in some some sense a mix, and we're trying to like get along with each other in that sense of in, 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 with that. If we if we understand that, then it's much easier to treat other people with with respect if we can. Um, I mean, it's hard sometimes when people are, are attacking you, um, but uh, if to, I've, I've tried to remember that. Yeah. Hey friends, just a quick request while you're enjoying this video to leave a thumbs up. My thumb's a little bit preoccupied with all Carl Sagan over here, but I hope yours is free enough to leave a like. It really helps me with the algorithm. And for extra credit homework assignment, leave a comment down below what you're enjoying about this video. Now back to the show. Especially as we'll get to, you know, people that portray themselves as, as you know, devout Christians and and then uh, come down with profoundly, um, uh, not, not only unchristian, but perhaps undignified ways of behaving. I want to pivot from, you know, our theological uh, out, you know, discussion at the outset here too, uh, a notion of you know, that which came to sort of replace it. We were, of course, replete with this in, in Renaissance Italy, um, and, and that's science. And, and you know, of course, science, you know, the people that, that write history, the victors, right? So they got to call themselves the Enlightenment. They got to call themselves the Renaissance. They got to call the previous ages the Dark Ages. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's, it's kind of, um, I've heard that the, that the English, uh, as in UK textbooks, don't mention the Revolutionary War to in great detail, but but that's uh, besides the point. Um, is there such a thing as you know science? Uh, uh, is there such a thing as the scientific method? Uh, are these just sort of like um, you know hyperlinks that we keep in our mind, but we don't really know what they mean? Uh, do you think there is uh, something that can reasonably called be called the science or science uh, or even the scientific method, quote unquote? Well, I think I do think there's a scientific method. I, I think that the term that we normally think of as the science is really it's just like a it's if you if you take it very broadly, it's it's an attempt for humans to try to understand how the material world works, how the physical world works, to try to think of explanations for it. Um, and uh, the um, the difference between I think pre enlightenment science, which was science in its in in reality still science, and post enlightenment science, is an emphasis on material causes for material uh, outcomes. Um, you don't make reference to God when you say you know why did this happen in scientific discussion post enlightenment. I think that's been quite productive actually. Um, I think it's it's disciplined people to try to look to see what can be told, what can be learned just by looking at material material inputs. Um, material meaning just a very broadly material, like yeah. you know, I mean, you know much more about the way the universe works than I do, Brian. So I'm not going to try to get into that. But I, but I think um, I think the uh, that the idea that uh, we can learn about the way the world works from um, from just, just from, from from experimenting with it with our with our intellects, um, that's broadly been true forever even before the enlightenment but but the, the set of explanations that we allow ourselves is limited to the material explanations that's been quite productive i think um in our advance in knowledge about the way the universe the material universe works yeah. um that doesn't mean there isn't a telos there doesn't mean that there isn't some some purpose beyond it uh and i think in, in our everyday lives uh, it's a mix of our material knowledge. You know, the fact that I know that if I hit a, a, ha a hammer to a window, it'll break. That doesn't mean I should hit a hammer to the window. I mean, that's a very different. Well, those are two different questions. There's a there's a um, there's a the a scientific fact that hitting hammers to windows breaks the window, and then there's a the question of whether it's the right or right right thing to do to break this window. Might be right if I'm you know trapped in a car and, it, and it's and it's burning. I need to get out. Or it might be very wrong if I'm trying to like you know break into somebody's house to to uh, steal from them. Right. Right. So I, th I think this very it's a the, the telos is 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 really quite important for how we live. But for science, especially enlightenment science, focus on the material causes has been really really a good good thing. I think. 
Yeah. When we look back, you know, before we turn to slides that you're going to show from um, a presentation that you have, uh, when we look back in the pandemic, I, I first became aware of COVID-19 in early January 2020. And I was at a Shabbat dinner on a Friday night with a, a friend who listens to the podcast. And he's not, you know, he's like a, a social psychologist you can think of as a, as a sports psychologist. He helps me get into, you know, fighting shape from my MMA battle. No, he doesn't do that. But but uh, he, he's a brilliant, you know, kind of a social scientist. And, you know, he was just saying, oh, what are you up to this year? You know, what are you looking forward to? And I said, oh, I'm supposed to go to China, to Tibet, to look at this cosmology project that they've asked me to kind of consult on. And it's kind of a, you know, maybe a rival to my project, but but it'll be kind of interesting to get complementary data from another group that has different expertise. And I'm excited about it. I've never been to China, um, certainly not to Tibet. <laughs> and he's like, uh, you might want to hold off. You know, when are you thinking of going? I, I said, you know, uh, March, uh, April. And, and he said, uh, you might want to reconsider that. Did you hear about, you know, they've got this disease. Yeah, I'd heard about it. But uh, he's like, you know, they just built this hospital in eight days that doubles as a prison. They can weld people into it, keep people out. Uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, but, you know, maybe push it off to April, July. You know, needless to say, I never went, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm still, uh, China still does not appear in my passport. Uh, Russia does, but China doesn't. Anyway, the, the point being uh, that my friend who's not a member of the NSA, CIA, FBI, DARPA, uh, you know, the, the any of the multi-letter agencies, he knew about this, you know, so like a couple of Jewish yentas, you know, at, at, at a dinner, right? We knew about it in January. Um, by that time, there could have been, you know, many, many more uh, the precautions, uh, preventative measures put in place, uh, maybe even a month earlier. And, and as an epidemiologically trained individual, you know better than I how these things can spread. Is there anything in retrospect, in hindsight, before we get to the actual uh, incredible story of what you have related and experienced, uh, which which I, I um, just I begged you to share it with my audience, and so we will. Before we get there, could it have been avoided? Is there any point, you know, in the multiple branching forks of the Garden of Forking Paths history? Could we have made it de minimis, like a just a sniffle, or was it inevitable from the time it was either? created or released or um, are naturally, you know, spread from from a zoonotic origins, could it have been prevented by any technology, any scientific or technological insight that humanity as a whole or the US in particular could have applied? I don't I don't think so. I think unfortunately it was it was baked in the cake. I don't know if it's natural origin or, or zoonotic uh, or, or if it was a lab leak. In either case, the dates of it probably are in the fall of 2019. And the evidence of that is that there are antibody studies from uh, from stored blood in blood banks in places like Italy, Angola from September 2019, where it shows up positive. And there's some dispute over whether those are false positives, but I think I mean, it's really hard to just to, to, to like look at the body of evidence to say it's all false positive. I think sometime in fall 2019, this, this disease was already spreading um, throughout the world. It was already outside of China. It's a highly infectious disease. It, it was too late even by then, if we, had we known about it, to, to stop it. Uh, I do think that the actions of the Chinese government uh, worked to suppress knowledge of it, uh, especially in December, that became clear. Uh, you had some heroic doctors in China speaking up and they, they paid the price for it. Um, uh, but uh, but uh, by certainly by January 2019, 2020, uh, when China had really started to, to their, their draconian lockdown, just as you said, it was far too late because it wasn't just in China. It had already spread outside the world. You saw in um, late January 2019, the first cases, the U.S., even before that, there were cases in, in Italy, in Iran. Um, uh, the, the disease was seeded very widely, especially in the northern hemisphere early on. 
uh, in by early on, I mean January 2020, uh, shutting down travel was too late. Uh, it was, you know, I think people thought of this as like the 2003 SARS-1 epidemic, where uh, it really did sort of peter itself out. But that doesn't spread as easily. That virus didn't spread as easily as this virus does. This one seems to spread by aerosols. It, you, you breathe in the same, you know, I, I breathe in one room and then you come back into that, you come back into that room an hour later, you might still get my COVID. Um, that's, that, that wasn't true. I don't think it was much harder to spread SARS-1. Um, I don't think there was any mechanism by which we could have avoided the pandemic uh, short of, if it was a lab leak, not doing those kinds of exercises that led to the lab leak. Yeah. And of course, that has to be, you know, at least the consideration in any future research or, you know, kind of precautions put into place uh, in, in the future to prevent this from ever happening again. Do you think that the uh, that the American public would would tolerate another round of lockdown, let's say COVID-23 God forbid, uh, comes around COVID-27. I don't care what in the future. Have we been so scarred or have we been chastened or do you think it would just immediately happen again, just as it did in uh, 2020 and beyond? I mean, I was stunned that the lockdowns were accepted in 2020. I, I thought there would be much broader pushback against it. What I didn't anticipate was how important fear was in the minds of people and driving the behavior in minds of people in 2020. I mean, you look back to March of 2020, it was a time of, of great panic and fear in yeah. the scientific community, not just not just in, uh, in in the public. And in fact, uh, governments used propaganda to to actually induce fear. It made it very difficult to do uh, any kind of reasonable scientific minded thinking about what the right policy ought to be. Um, so the answer to your question, I think, is if there is another virus that spreads around and official dumb panics around it like they did during COVID, I'm afraid there would a lockdown would come back, mm -hmm. um, even if it wasn't particularly useful for stopping the spread of that virus, that, that hypothetical new virus. Um, I, my, one of my goals in the post-pandemic uh, time is to try to reform public health systems so that they, do, they don't knee-jerk react with fear to, the, the, uh, the, to a threat, but instead try to uh, develop evidence very quickly and assess what the right response ought to be uh, in a cool mind, as opposed to panicking themselves and then spreading that panic to the population at large. Right. We like to think of ourselves as scientists, as dispassionate, as following the evidence. And, and of course, you know, I, I have given talks where I speak about political, comma, scientist. Um, but, um, but, you know, to push back with respect, um, you know, it's often said that, well, America has one of the lowest numbers of, of scientists in, in public policy. And you look at the kind of, you know, crazed reaction and an illegitimate, you know, kind of uh, hyperbole surrounding everything, not, not just of our own COVID reaction. So wouldn't it be better if uh, our government were, you know, a scientocracy or, or something like that, where you had the the most brilliant, you know, and you and I would be the leaders of it. I mean, this, this could be great, Jay. <laughs> oh, God forbid, <laughs> Brian and Jay rule the universe. Uh, but no, we have brilliant colleagues. You know, these are the I know fourteen Nobel Prize winners. Uh, you know, some on your campus up there, and and you know, why not? Just have these brilliant geniuses, um, um, men and women of science, uh, not only advising, you know, President Biden. I mean, what is he? He doesn't know much about science, I don't think. Um, so why not have the have an, an elevated role for scientists in the government to enact policies that are t fact tested, replicable? Uh, they are peer reviewed, uh, all these things. Why not? What's wrong with that, Jay? Well, I'm not against having more scientists advise governments. Um, I, I, what I found, and I've had a lot of opportunities during the pandemic to interact with politicians of, of some of who actually are quite adept at following scientific arguments and others who just, it's hopeless. Um, I, I think, I, th I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The question is, what's their proper role? 
right? right? So uh, scientists can t uh, can tell you how to break a window, but the scientists can't tell you whether you should break a window. Um, those that involves trade-offs, values that people fundamentally have. So um, you ask uh, about about like how scientists performed, official scientists performed um, during the pandemic. I have to say, rather poorly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, that the, the, uh, there's two things that happened. One is that they, in the midst of panic, that that was that scientists themselves, public health people in themselves, induced. Um, they were very bad at reading evidence, and then second. They took on themselves this role that that we are really unsuited for. We're not we're not king we're not philosopher kings, Brian. Uh, I mean, we have our our blind sights and we 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 have our values, which may may differ with other people's values. It's it's absolutely possible. The way that's mediated in, in society in a democratic society is through politics. Unfortunately, there's no other way really. I mean, there's no there's no benevolent philosopher king that can decide this is the right thing to do. You have to have uh, the possibility that people people of different values um, discussing. With each other sometimes sometimes you know in, in unpleasant ways um, but that process results in at least some kind of compromise um, scientists what we can do is we can say well if you do a b is likely to happen and then everyone can just can argue with each other whether b is a good thing or a bad thing um, we are not very good at that so um to go back to our uh you know kind of origin of our relationship in person uh we were treated to a, a presentation of basically, you know, a hellscape, a, a life basically of, of nightmarish uh, proportions that I, I really, you know, I was almost brought to, to tears. I told my wife about this and, um, and the shameful treatment that you suffered, um, both at the hands of local officials, the media, the press, uh, and then, you know, your institution at Stanford, which I called home for a very brief period of time, and then the national government. And I wonder if if we could, uh, you know, share some of your recollections. I, I know it's painful, but but I think the um, the world needs to, to know the story. And and I want to play as you know, even though it'll be a tiny role, some some component and some role in in sharing what you've experienced with the world as um, both a fascinating, you know, in the same way uh, a, a horror movie is to me. Uh, you're gratified to not be in the movie if you're watching this um uh, what jay went through i wouldn't wish on my worst enemies and and i can only i can't really sympathize or empathize with it but i, I can just say um you know how much it moved me so i wonder if you could share those those uh, that presentation now jay i would i'd be delighted um although it's it is it is <laughs> having lived through it wasn't the most fun thing but uh right. but i think uh, it's cathartic to just talk about it okay uh, so uh, I'm going to tell two, two, there's two parts to my story, uh, uh, and it, it it starts basically in um, in March 2020. Um, I I had been following COVID, of course, before uh, before the pandemic, uh, before before March 2020, because just like you, I'd, I'd seen those reports out of China and so on. Um, I, I'd also had been I'd done work on infectious disease epidemiology and infectious disease policy for two decades before this. I, my, my very first papers were on HIV policy, for instance, um, and uh, you know published uh, peer-reviewed literature on on this. And, and and I'd been paying attention in during the H1N1 pandemic when what happened was that very early on in 2009 during that, that pandemic, the World Health organization put out a report saying that there was going to be a three, four or five percent mortality from swine flu, the H1N1. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened after that was really amazing to me. Like it, it, there were a whole bunch of studies in the population at large of, of, uh, of, of, of antibodies to H1N1, specific antibodies so that you could measure uh, how many people actually had had H1N1. And then what, what was the uh, what was the what was the the uh, uh, what was the actual rate, the prevalence of the disease, as opposed to like, you know, if you just rely on people showing up at the hospital, you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, it turns out. 
Right. Um, the seroprophylaxis study showed a very large number of people in the population in, during H1N1 having antibodies, meaning that a lot of people had gotten H1N1 and then recovered from it, never went to the hospital. And so those early death rate estimates, three, four, five percent, turned out to be a hundred times higher than was actually turned out to be true eventually. It took a year or more, about, and, but, that's, but that's partly why the H1N1 pandemic sort of fizzled out. People learned that it was much less deadly than they thought, that it had spread much more widely than they'd realized uh, based on these seroprevalence studies. Mm -hmm. So in March just for those that don't know, the sero is a blood um, sample test, right? Yeah, a, a blood test. So um, you're speaking to a lot of cosmologists, Jay. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so seroprevalence, sero means blood, uh, and uh, prevalence means how how frequent is it. Yeah. Um, so you do a, a population sample of uh, of, of blood. Uh, usually it's, like, so it's just a little finger prick, or sometimes a blood a, a more a bigger blood draw, and then there are standard tests to see if you have antibody that specific that specifically reacts to H1N1 and not to other viruses or other pathogens. Um, so if you have this path, this antibody, that means you've been exposed and recovered. Um, there's sometimes disputes over whether those antibodies actually protect you against getting disease again, but there's no dispute that having the antibody means you were exposed. And you and you must have recovered because you're not dead. Um, anyway, so that 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 was the, that was the debate during H1N1. And when um, when COVID hit, I had the thought that look, this is this is a very highly infectious respiratory virus. Maybe this happened again. This is happening again. Um, the, the World Health Organization. This is on the screen. You can see the World Health Organization put out a, a report in March of 2020 saying the death rate is 3.4 percent. Well, uh, I mean, my first thought reaction to that was this is this can't be right. They don't know this number. They don't know this number because they don't know how many people actually have been exposed. They haven't run the seroprevalence studies that would have allowed them to actually say what the death rate actually was. Um, and so uh, I, you know, I spent my entire career, Brian, writing peer-reviewed papers. I have uh, never been on TV. I think I was maybe TV one time in the past. I can't remember. It was, it was, it was like a, a nothing thing um, uh, in 2000s, like in the 2000s. Um, and and I'd never written an op-ed. All of my work and all my focus has been on writing papers. Right. I saw this and I thought to myself, I, I, have, to say, I have to say something. And so I wrote an op-ed. Uh, you can see that on the screen. Uh, in March 24th, 2020, uh, well, uh, that changed my life. I mean, it, it utterly was, was shocking to me how, how much it changed my life, but it, it did. Um, the uh, the op-ed, if you read it, uh, basically said, uh, tried, to, tried to like figure out what the death rate might be based on the very limited evidence we have. And I came to the conclusion that it's a very wide range of numbers were possible, too wide a range. It could have been very, very low death rate, like H1N1 was, or it could have been as high as the World Health Organization was saying. It was impossible to know until you actually ran a study, a, a seroprevalence study, to measure what fraction of the population had the, had the virus. Um, so that was the conclusion of this of this op-ed that we wrote in the Wall Street, was published in the Wall Street Journal in March. Okay, how could 24. you know? Just a naive. I mean, how could you know that it was? I mean. It could also be too low by orders of magnitude if, if we have no other things to base it on, if it's truly novel, you know, genotype in, in, in the history of planet Earth. I mean, couldn't have also been too low. Um, I mean, how did you know to be confident before there were these studies, in other words, I mean, uh, that that it, that it you know couldn't be equally underestimating and it could be much worse. Yeah. I mean, so there's two parts to this. It just just is way easier than than cosmology. So yeah. it's, it's very simple. So it's a new, there's a numerator, the number of deaths, and yeah. denominator, number of infected people, right? Yeah. Um, and the number of deaths you have to wait a couple of weeks because it takes you a couple of weeks between infection and deaths in, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the the question was uh, that my focus was on the denominator: how many people were infected? Yeah. And that had to have been an underestimate. That could only really be an underestimate. Mm -hmm. Uh, because we were we were estimating that based on how many people showed up at the hospital, right, or showed up with with positive tests. There weren't enough tests back then. Yeah, um, the PCR test had just been developed, uh, and they weren't. And you know, remember there was a shortage of that 
Oh, yeah. And so we were, I, th- I think we were very clearly underestimating the denominator. Uh, it's true, Brian, you could have, we could also have been underestimating the numerator. There might've been people that died from COVID that, that we didn't catch. I think it's a big problem, for instance, in poor countries where the, the healthcare systems were poor. Um, uh, but in, uh, mm-hmm. in the United States, basically everyone with a respiratory infection severe enough to get into the hospital were, was being tested for COVID at the time. Yeah. It seemed unlikely to me that the numerator was, was, uh, was vastly underestimated. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's some people who thought that, but I think there were, it was unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, but my focus wasn't on the numerator. Uh, even if the numerator were doubled, it doesn't really change the, the fact about the denominator that, that you can measure independently using these seroprevalence studies. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, anyways, I, I wrote this piece um, thinking, okay, uh, le- I, I, the, now that I've put this out, someone's going to want to do a seroprevalence study, never really thinking it was going to be me. And a few things happened. Um, um, I started getting, first, I started getting like some very positive things. Like I got people from around the world offering me help to run a seroprevalence study. Former students of mine um, who were in other other universities offered to help. Um, Ron Ben David, who wrote this piece with me, he's a he's a former student of mine uh, who's now a professor here at Stanford, very prominent, uh, well-known infectious disease uh, epidemiologist and doctor. Um, he offered to help um, run the study. Uh, I got an email from someone in Major League Baseball, Dan Eichner, who runs uh, essentially like cheating, you know, testing for steroids and stuff for Major League Baseball players. He runs this major major independent lab, and he had ordered a whole bunch of seroprevalence of, of, of antibody tests from China. These were in short supply. It's really hard to get them. But he'd had the four, um, you know, he he basically had the foresight to say, look, baseball is going to need them. I'm going to order them for baseball. Wow. And he had a huge stash of them. Um, huge. I mean, it was like 10,000 10, tests he had available. And he and, and he called me up and he said, look, uh, I don't want to use this for baseball. I want to use this for science. I want to use this for public health. And I want you to use them for running a test, a study. And just <laughs> offered them up to for free. Make this space, I mean, it's just, uh, it was a really good feeling. A lot of people were coming together to try to answer this really important question. How big is the denominator? We really needed to know this number in order to understand what the right policy ought to be. Um, at the same time, I wrote this piece and I started getting death threats. I got I got friends of mine who uh, from Stanford who defriended me on Facebook. I got I got like this is some of the vilest emails uh, questioning my motives. My motive, Brian, was to actually just to understand how large the denominator was. It was a hypothesis, and I wanted to test it. Um, I mean, that's what that's what it said. The the, yeah. the article said that, and it was that was actually kind of shocking to me um, that an article like this, which is to me was just like a. a, a Putting forward a scientific hypothesis would be met with this kind of vile, vile attacks. Yeah, it's, it's almost um, like they wanted, you know, for better or for worse, we have all these, you know, trainings here in San Diego. I'm sure you have it in Stanford too about, you know, how uh, toxic academia is and and how you know how awful it. And undoubtedly, I mean, we're talking to somebody who had a toxic experience <laughs> in academia. But I think they mean, you know, typically more, you know, the student experience, et cetera. Uh, universities are racist, elitist, you know, classist, and some of this is, is undoubtedly true. I mean, my home university was, you know, uh, was founded in part uh, because of a, you know, need to uh, de-anti-Semitize, you know, the location where the university is. They wouldn't uh, allow Jews to own real estate in the in the town where UC San Diego is located. Uh, you couldn't <laughs> oh sell God. a house to a black, a Mexican, or a Jew. And that lasted until the 60s, until uh, Roger Ravel had the foresight to notice that Jonas Salk uh, couldn't buy a house in, next to his laboratory. Uh, so that <laughs> fell by the wayside. But so academia has always been rife with, with sexism and all these things. But when you advocate, you know, the opposite point of view, when you say, look, we've made a lot of changes, oftentimes you are met with, uh, and look, I'm a Jew saying that we no longer have rampant anti-Semitism, even though we have instances on campus, it doesn't mean the campus is anti-Semitic. So the point is, it almost seemed like people wanted it to be a pandemic. Like we almost willed it to, I mean, how else can you explain 
you know, the vitriol, right? The, the, you're, you're basically saying like, let's collect data and, and be agnostic. And maybe, maybe you didn't choose the headline. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, that should be that controversial. It's a scientific question, uh, for a lay audience. So what do you attribute that to the, the scientists, you know, questioning your motives? You, you mentioned that happened in your Facebook defriending, which, which, you know, might ultimately yeah. be a good thing because you filter out who's really your friend. <laughs> I mean, it's, these, these are people I love and respect. I, yeah. I've worked hard to forgive them in my own heart. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe, maybe someday I, I it's going to be hard to forgive forget that 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 uh, yeah. uh that they acted this way but i you know it was there was oh, there were many of them were just scared mm. um i think um part of it uh i mean I, we, we absolutely i think in science think of ourselves as you know above the fray but we're not really yeah. like we're subject to the same kinds of biases in our thinking and our and our, our knee-jerk reactions and even prejudices that that everyone is we're, we're still human ryan right yeah. um and I think that's that's that 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 came out really clearly. Uh, the other thing around this, the the, the scientists had already spoken up. Some some of the pro, like the primary, uh, you know, Tony Fauci, for instance, had already had already recommended a lockdown. These lockdowns had already been implemented around the country by March twenty fourth when we wrote this piece. Right, we'd already been sheltered yeah. at home. We started for, here in California, two weeks to slow the spread. Right. Yeah, and this was like a week and a half into this, and then there was this sense, I think, of common purpose around the the the, the lockdowns. Like, there's, at least in the, in the in the university communities, look, we're we're doing our best to like work together to get rid of this disease. And here I am saying, "Lo, I don't know if we have the empirical basis to justify the lockdowns." Right? That's what that's that's what I wrote. I said, "Let's do science to fix it," but it's not popular to do science when we're all in this together and we're all like sacrificing together. Although, actually, lockdowns I don't think are actually a common sacrifice. It's it's really it's, it benefits uh, the relatively well off in society, really hurts the poor. But that we that's 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 something that was in the back of my head also. Mm-hmm. That the lockdowns were going to be really quite damaging for poor people, for for children, for older people, for for vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, you know, these I, I didn't view these as costless. I think many many people thought of because okay, we just do two weeks, get rid of the disease, and then move on with our life. That was the yeah. story we were told. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of this, I'm saying, no, no, why don't we do an, why don't we do a study to see if it's actually right to do what we just did? And a lot of people had put their reputations behind what we what we had just did. We'd asked the entire world essentially to lock down, to stop. It's an extraordinary thing. For yeah. scientists, to, scientists to ask to do, and people listen. They did it. Um, we still have and, things uh, here, you know, in, in UCSD. We have to wear masks in classrooms up until recently. I taught this whole spring with and the whole classroom was masked, except in the dining halls. We we didn't have to wear masks, and and I and I also noticed many times, you know, during the pandemic, I'd be commuting, and I remember being at Stanford and seeing the same behavior. So I'm sure it took place there. Um, young men and women prime of their lives, super fit on their skateboards, you know, going across the quad here or there. No and, helmet, uh, but a mask. <laughs> uh, no helmet, mask, and on their phone, Jay. Uh, incredible. Uh, well, and the risk I mean, assessment. Yeah. There's something very good about that, actually. I and mean, we make fun, but like, honestly, like, w- w- there's like a deep empathy underneath that behavior. They're like, they're they're afraid, not for themselves, but they're like trying to protect their old older uh, professors or something, or their grandma or something. Right. Like, there's some empathy underneath this. Uh, public health weaponized that empathy, unfortunately, I think. Mm. They used people's, especially young people's natural desire to do good, uh, to, to gain compliance with behaviors that actually didn't have a scientific basis underneath them. Um, so, uh, or, or had a very inadequate scientific basis, I think, uh, underneath them. So I think, I think that's, that's part, part of the legacy of this. The other, the other thing I found was like, there was some like aspects of professional jealousy and like, there was, you know, why am I running the zero problems? I'm, I do, I do research in health policy for a living. I do, I, I, I write, I analyze data. That's my, that's my job. But I don't yeah. generally go and do zero problem studies. This is the first one I've ever done, mm-hmm. right? So why am I 
the one doing it instead of somebody else who has an experience who's experienced running these kinds of studies doing it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I personally at this point would have been quite happy to like have the CDC run the seroprevalence study. Yeah, right. Uh, this is what I was calling for effect in effect in this in this you can see that this is the last sentence of the of the, of the last two sentences of the of the op-ed. Uh, universal quarantine may not be worth the cost imposed on the economy, community, individual mental and physical health. We should undertake immediate steps to evaluate the empirical basis of the current lockdowns. I thought the CDC would run this study. That would have bleeded away the controversy, I think, because that people would have people view the CDC as a as a legitimate scientific agency with very serious people. It is a legitimate agency with serious people. That's just they made tremendous mistakes during the pandemic. Right. At this point, though, I had no don't doubt that about the CDC's capacity to run such a study, um, and, but they just didn't do it. It fell on me in part because I wrote this op-ed. It wasn't something I was seeking. Right. Um, anyway, so um, we, we wrote this and uh, we actually did the study. Yeah. Um, in April, early April 2020, we collected about uh, 3,000 samples from um, since Santa Clara County. It was, it, was, it was really hard to run this during a lockdown because people were afraid to come out to get their blood collected. Right. Um, we couldn't get an agreement to go into nursing homes, uh, so we only did a community sample. Uh, sampling was even hard, right? So we did this like Facebook sampling, which turned out to be very controversial because what it ended up doing is it, it pulled more people from the richer parts of Santa Clara County, whereas the poorer parts are less likely to be on Facebook. They didn't sign up, so we had to do some reweighting to try to like get a population level. Um, um, there was also controversy over the test kit that we used. The test kit uh, actually turned out to be quite good. The FDA eventually approved the test kit for emergency use. Um, it had a false positive rate of 0.5 percent hmm. doesn't sound that high but if you have a very low prevalence there's some possibility that you if all, all false positives some some very small poss possibility uh, we corrected for that in the statistics uh, the original version we put this out as a working paper um, you know like a preprint which then led to like all these people saying look you, you got all the math wrong you did everything wrong uh when i put this out there's a whole uh, the, it, the, the world blew up again um i started getting like uh, again, more death threats, more more attacks. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like media attention, some positive and some quite unfairly negative, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, the, when was this submitted though, Jay? This, this was published in 2021, so. Yeah, so we submitted it to like four different journals and they uh, after, the, after the media attacks on us, mm -hmm. uh, it, we basically couldn't get a fair hearing. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we revised, I have to say like the preprint process, I found actually quite good. Like I was really pleased with it in, in, the, in a scientific sense. Um, so we got help on, on from world-class statisticians on how, how to redo the standard. There was an error in the very first version of it. And we, we corrected the error in a week thanks to help from from countless scientists around the world. Um, we wanted to measure the 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 uh, false positive rate of the test kit we were using to look for antibodies, right? It's a very important number. Yeah. Um, the, the manufacturer had given us a study out of about, I think it was like 400 people that they'd taken stored blood from 2018, more or less, and then run run the, the test kit against it. Now, it should be negative because yeah. there was no COVID in 2018. Right. So any positives you see are false positives. And in that in that stored blood study, they, they, had, they, they came out with this 0.5%. It turned out, and we found out after we released the preprint, that there were labs around the world that were trying to check the false positive rate of this antibody test kit. And they sent us their results for use in our study. Wow. And so we went from like 400 uh, samples checking for, for, for false positive rate to like 3,000 samples yeah. in a week. Um, it's right. just people just shared the results. This was how science ought to be done. We we're working together as scientists to help each other understand the physical world. And the preprint process was really fantastic for that. It also led to like a lot of bad things. Like, you know, there were all these Twitter attacks. Um, uh, there was a, uh, we, we, by the way, we, uh, I think science really needs to be replicated. 
Yeah. So, uh, for, so this, I really like this study. I, I think we got the result right. Uh, I'll tell you the results in a second. Uh, but, um, but we did another seroprevalence study in, in LA County the week after that, 10th through 11th of April, mm -hmm. um, uh, with the same test kit, but with a very different sampling scheme. Here we hired a professional firm that had a representative sample of LA County and we sampled them. Mm. And so we had no fight over whether we had the, the representation correct. Um, yeah. And um, I'll tell you the results. So the results were, one, there were, um, do I have it here? Um, 50 times more infections than cases. 50 wow. times more infections. For every person that had been identified by public health as being positive, there are 50 people or 40 people walking around LA County or Santa Clara County that had um, that had tested that, that tested positive, that had antibody positive, meaning that they they were they had been exposed to the disease, recovered. Some many of them, I'm like maybe 30 percent of them didn't even remember ever having symptoms. So this disease then produces a very wide range of clinical outcomes, not no symptoms at all. Mm. You just recover, not even knowing that you were sick, to these horrible severe viral pneumonia that's killing people. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, we were focused on the viral pneumonia when, in fact, there was a big, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of iceberg underneath of lots and lots of people that had that had this. Uh, there's three lessons. For this. One is that the death rate was 0.2 percent, 99.8 percent survival in the community. Now, we didn't sample nursing homes it's much higher there. Right. Um, uh, it, uh, the, the, the second, the disease was already too far gone in early April to, to stop it. 3% or 4% of the population had already had COVID. Mm. That means the zero COVID, if you, you may as well forget about zero COVID. This disease is here to stay and it's likely to infect a very large fraction of the population before it's done. We knew that in early, early April, 2020 from this study. Um, and then, um, and then the, the third thing, it's only three or 4% of the population that we measured having this. That means the disease still has quite a long way to go. We're in for a long epidemic. Right? Those are three lessons to be learned from this. And I don't think anyone wanted to learn any of those lessons because the, from, the, from the hate mail I got from, from these studies. Um, this, this paper was published in the Journal of American Medical Association, the, the, the LA County one. We, we didn't release through a preprint process. And so it didn't get quite the same notoriety or controversy, but it was the same, very similar methodology and went through peer review right. and published in one of the top medical journals yeah. almost immediately um, with me, me as a senior author. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, it's one of these things where like, um, I thought we were doing good science. I still think we did good science here. Uh, yeah, I mean, what could possibly be political a month after this? I mean, it was advocating against. I mean, this isn't even advocating for or against the lockdown. I mean, it's no, uh, it's just it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a key scientific fact that we need to know, know to decide whether a lockdown may be worth it or I, not. I had Eric Topol on the podcast about a year and a half ago um, when we were still in the Delta wave, I think it was. And you know, I I, I didn't really push on him as hard as I probably should have. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's hard when you're talking to somebody. Somebody and, and you want to establish a rapport and you want them to speak freely and and not feel like they're on 60 minutes but you know one of the things i i um i'm embarrassed to say i i really didn't push him hard on the on his political uh involvement in the uh in the release you know choosing effectively to advocate at least i mean he wasn't in control of it but he advocated against releasing the uh, the results of the of the at least the Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine results prior to the election, and part of it was you know uh, at least it reported in the public. I, I can't you know vouch for this, and maybe you know more about it, but there there may have been political ramifications around that. And I didn't ask him about that. But if I could go back and do the interview again, um, you know, I would ask him uh, if if this as in he's a huge proponent of the vaccine, as you know he and I did speak about. Uh, but um, but given that you know there were people that didn't take the vaccine because it was not released until after the election or results at least the results of the trial study were not released until after november whatever 9th or 8th of, of 2020 um that means people died right jay 
I mean, people died that could have been saved. You're not an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> you're vaccinated. Right. You're, I advocated for the vaccine. You advocate for sure. the vaccine. So that means people died, right? Because let's just take Eric out of it, okay? So let's just say people that didn't want the vaccine and said, I won't take a vaccine, a Trump vaccine, um, then then isn't it safe to say that people died uh, because of uh, for political basically purposes? I mean, you can't have it both. You can't say the vaccine worked and say it was a good thing to withhold the vaccine for any period of time during a raging inferno. Uh, it's like uh, it's like withholding a fire extinguisher. Am I, am I wrong? Well, I, just to defend Eric, although I think he's um, I mean, he's a, he, he, he is a good scientist and he's tried tried his best. But I do think I do. And I do think I agree with you that he politicized. Um, his science and his advocacy in a way that was really quite harmful. But just to defend, uh, like you, you, you know, when you release, um, when the FDA says, "Look, we we have enough information to recommend that, that to allow a, a, a firm to market some product," you have to have some confidence that they've done this testing right. And so, in principle, you could say, "Well, look, Eric, Eric's just saying, let the FDA do its work. Uh, don't let there be political pressure to release the study early or whatever." Uh, th that would be my sort of attempt to try to defend Eric. Um, I, I, I do think, though, that, that that wasn't just all of it. Like, I, I, I actually worked with the FDA on vaccine safety for you know, almost a decade, helping them with like measuring, uh, setting statistical systems to measure vaccine safety and, and drug safety. Um, uh, I mean, there's some great scientists there. Uh, but the pressure on the FDA on both sides was really truly, truly something horrible to watch. Um, I think, like for instance, now it's been very they've been very slow to release data on on whether the vaccines show safety signals. It, that undermines confidence in vaccines when you when you see a political an agency that's just not supposed to be political right. uh, act politically. And it's also the same thing for scientists for for scientists to act politically. When in fact we're just supposed to be supposed to try to just follow the data, no matter what, where it leads for politics. So I think, like when Eric wrote that letter, um, encouraging the, the 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 slower release of the the of the of the of the vaccine data or the FDA approval of it, it really struck me as political. Mm -hmm. It struck me as like he was more concerned about about uh, Trump winning than he was about yeah, whether that's what I'm referring to, you know, yeah. but I guess I want to push back on you with love and, and respect, but say, if you could do it again, Jay, knowing that um, the results that you published in the 2021 study that were done in 2020, and then this study that's currently on the screen, it, you, these have life-saving potential. They may have been tainted, the acceptance of them, the hate mail, death threats, um, those may not have happened. Of course, counterfactual history is impossible, but you know, we have a multiverse in cosmology. So let me just ask the question. Do you regret publishing the op-ed uh, in that it may have, you know, biased um, ordinary clear-headed people uh, to reject the work of you as an eminent scientist and your many, many colleagues, two different studies showing the same thing. Um, do you re regret the op-ed? Do you feel like it was counterproductive in the long sweep of history? Would you do it again? I would do it in a heartbeat. I, don't, I didn't have a choice. Like I had a hypothesis that I thought was very important from a scientific perspective and also a policy perspective, not politics, but policy perspective. Mm -hmm. That's my job, Ryan. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, it's, like, it's, it's like you having an idea about where to look in the universe to, to resolve fundamental cosmological questions. You have to do it. It's just part of who you are. Yeah. Right. You have to you have to try to follow through. The mm -hmm. same thing with here. This was my job. Like this is this is my the purpose of my my work was to have this hypothesis, have hypotheses like this and test them no matter what the what the costs are uh, to me personally, that is. Yeah. Um, so I just I would do it again in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. I, I I mean, the politicization was, you know, my, by March of 2020, it was already people were already like, you know, tr Trump had already screwed up everything. And uh, they were, you know, there was in this environment where especially in academics, um, there's a lot of hate for Trump. Yeah. 
I think it sort of uh, colored people's thinking about about this. And so, like people thought saw these studies, and when Trump had said things like, "Well, the we don't want the 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 cure to be worse than the disease," right? Meaning the lockdowns you don't want to be you don't want to do lockdowns if they hurt people. I mean, just because Trump said it doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. I mean, that's absolutely true. You don't want the cure to be worse than the disease, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we, I, I think there was this like sort of, especially in the scientific community, this knee-jerk reaction against Trump as, he, as if he were some uniquely bad thing. Right. And so and that, therefore, anybody who sided with him or aided him became tainted with the taint of Trump, you know, the scarlet letter T, um, including you, I think. I mean, you yeah, the, again, the, I saw you uh, in the public long before I met you. Uh, advocating common sense. You're very sober. You have a gravitas. You're, uh, you know, if I had to define you, you know, I know you're a God-fearing man. I know you're a wonderful, devout Christian, family man. But I think of you as scientist. And by the way, that's a compliment for me because I don't think most physicians are, are scientists, at least <laughs> uh, the ones that I teach, you know, that kind of say like, will this be on the test? And um, it used to be <laughs> that that physicians and physicists, there was an actual connection between the terms, uh, but, it, but it really has dissipated. But I think you, you, are, you are a true scientist scientist at heart and you're a doctor second and I'm not diminishing your role as a doctor but at all I'm just saying no, you I'm, are... I'm primarily a researcher this is that's where my that's yeah. that's where my inclinations are I don't I don't see patients Brian I, what I do for a living is I do research for a living yeah. if I'm not a scientist then I'm not a, that's not I don't know what to call myself yeah exactly um, <laughs> all right yeah so let's uh so after the study then that's so, yeah good. so like what happened next was really kind of shocking so I, I'll get back to this yeah. I, there was a series of articles uh May 2020 uh, April 2020 uh, by uh, uh, this. I just picked on this BuzzFeed author who's I, I, actually she was she was obsessed with me. Um, I called I, my friends and I started calling her Javert after the Les Mis, you know, the right. like the the the, the, the uh, inspector in Les Mis or whatever. I mean, right. um, she she wanted to she wanted to create a scandal around the study around any any activities. So uh, involved in the study was this guy, this man named Johnny Anides, mm -hmm. who I believe is the most highly cited author in existence that's still living. Yeah. Um, I mean, he he uh, he was an he is an amazing man, truly one of the, probably the, the smartest man I've ever met. I mean, he had an incredible energy. He had written, um, for instance, to expose Theranos, you know, the Elizabeth yeah. Holmes fraud very yeah. early. Uh, he uh, in, wrote a paper in, in 2005, essentially saying, look, 95% uh, of all published medical studies are wrong. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You read the paper and you're like, at the end of it, you're like, yeah, he's right. 95% of all medical studies are wrong. It's like a five page paper or whatever. And it's, it's, he's just a brilliant man. And he, as a result of his work, there's been this like replicability crisis that, yeah. that's, I think, improved, uh, uh, you know, psychology, economics. Yeah. Um, I spoke with really, uh, Guido Imbens at Stanford, uh, Nobel laureate, about that very topic. And, and the, uh, this called the uh, credibility revolution that he in part won the Nobel Prize for. He's exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think uh, John Ioannidis was a, is uh, was like he the fact that he was in this study he'd also created a lot, uh, generate a lot of enemies through his career because he just called out bad science yeah. um and many of them stuck their heads up to try to get back at him and uh he was a senior author in the santa clara study uh funny it's like the santa clara study uh, got all this like nasty attacks the, the la county study where he wasn't an author didn't get nearly as many nasty attacks I and mean, it's kind of a clean experiment if you ask me um but anyways what happened was that this this buzzfeed author she decided that, that we were bad guys. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, one of the things for that Santa Clara study was a big community of people that, that tried to help. Like my, my wife, for instance, volunteered to help. She negotiated, we couldn't find any place that would allow us to have this, like, we had this like drive through finger prick check of blood, blood draws, right? So yeah, like- people, people this, were washing their groceries. I mean, let, let's not forget this M. People were going totally nuts. And I actually have a theory, Jay, that part of it was because of the movie, um, uh, was Agent. it out? 
outbreak or contagion? outbreak yeah the one matt damon one uh because all that stuff and you could just see these journalists you know watching that movie oh there's fomite and there's this and, and it all of a sudden became in the literature and what were people doing during during the pandemic they were watching netflix and what was the most popular movie uh, contagion and um there's so many things in that, that from from you know the transmission the zoonotic that all i think got imprinted on a base layer in these journalists minds and uh, as opposed to doing real sound scientific research and, and verifying checking sources etc uh, they relied on, on kind of that pop knowledge but anyway i don't i don't want to derail you where, where you were no i mean that's exactly what happened right i think i think because and so like people were scared to like sign up for their study because yeah, they didn't want to be face to face with someone drawing right. blood so what we did is we had this drive through blood draw so people like drove up they stuck their finger out the almost closed window we did a little prick got a little blood prick and then they drove drove up and it was it was hard to organize we had to get uh like my church uh agreed to let our they use our parking lot yeah. as a drive through and my wife helped arrange that and she my wife's a physician she wrote this email to her to my kids middle school listserv Mm-hmm. Without asking me, she was doing this because out of her out of her, her sense that she wanted to like help. Um, but she actually it's to asking people to sign up for the study. Now we had a Facebook sampling scheme. I really didn't want people to randomly sign up. Stanford professors were calling me wanting to sign up for the study because they wanted to know their antibody test level, okay. uh, antibody levels. Um, and I, I had to say no. I, I myself never checked my antibody levels till months later because I felt like we had such a scarce resource in these antibody yeah. test kits. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, she, uh, Stephanie Lee, this BuzzFeed author, uh, made a scandal out of it. Somebody leaked that email that my wife sent to my kid's middle school listserv, and she made my wife into this bad guy. A Stanford professor's wife recruited people for his coronavirus study by claiming it would reveal if they could return to work without fear, because she made the, the claim that if you have an antibody, it's likely that you're immune. Mm-hmm. In that, now, turns out that, that having antibodies being exposed to COVID and recovering does provide immunity. That's absolutely true. Um, but Which, by the way, Fauci, Fauci said he was ignorant on that question and not, you know, one way or another, not stupid, but just he was agnostic. They didn't know as of last year, I believe. In other words, they had never done a natural immunity study. And to my knowledge, I don't know if the CDC or NAID or whatever the agency is, have they ever done a natural immunity study? Yeah, they, they finally, I mean, they finally acknowledged it uh, relatively recently, shockingly, because, you know, by early, by eight, late April, uh, when this BuzzFeed author wrote this thing, it was still quite controversial whether there was immunity or not after mm-hmm. COVID recovery. Um, but by like the middle of the summer, it was really clear from reading like cell and nature, the studies in cell and nature of immunity, especially like cellular immunity was pretty strong after you after you COVID recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, that question, there was some uncertainty, I think in April, not so much uncertainty by like July of 2020. I basically decided from reading that literature that, 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 that there was pretty pretty solid evidence in favor of, I didn't know how long it was last, um, that you need long-term epidemiological studies, but now, we, now we've had them. Uh, it seems to last up until, until you get a new variant, but even if you get a new variant, the second time you get it, it's likely to be less severe than the first time you get it. Right. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so she wrote this study, and I got to tell you, Brian, I was filled with anxiety. Now, all of a sudden, my wife was this national negative story. She, she's a, she's a, she's now brought into this. She's just a civilian in this right. fight. It's one thing to attack me. I mean, I, I wasn't really emotionally prepared for that either at the time. Um, but to attack my family, I felt like I, my life was out of control. I couldn't yeah. protect my my own my own wife. I was worried about my kids because now I have this notoriety, and maybe the, the, their teachers or someone will take take action against them. Or right. worse, I'm getting death threats. Right. Um, and and uh, I was I lost 
30 pounds of anxiety weight. I mean, I could have stood to lose it actually, Brian, I have to say, uh, to be honest, but like, that's not the right way to do it. Within like no. two, a month and a half, I'd lost a tremendous amount of weight. I couldn't sleep. It was really, really, uh, it was like, it was a dark time for me. Of course. Um, she, she wrote another piece saying JetBlue's founder helped fund a Stanford study that said the coronavirus wasn't that deadly. Now, the, the study, we ran it for about $100,000, which is very cheap for a study of that size. Um, and it was funded by small dollar donations to Stanford. I didn't take a single penny for the study. Mm -hmm. um, and Stanford knew this. That one of the people that donated to the study was this man uh, who founded JetBlue. Um, I had a couple of conversations, but he wanted me to run studies in New York City, but I didn't have the infrastructure to run studies anywhere other than just where I happened to have local connections like LA and, and Santa Clara. So I, that didn't go anywhere, but he was very generous. He gave $5,000 to Stanford for the study. Um, and uh, uh, somehow that turned into this like weird conflict of interest. It's normally how studies are funded, like this anonymous gift account given to Stanford. Yeah, I'm not going to change the result of my studies because the JetBlue founder gave five thousand dollars for a hundred thousand dollar study. It's insane. Um, and but that was the app, and she she wrote it. A Stanford whistleblower complaint alleges. Right. Stanford then took that and started. Uh, first, they called it an investigation, but then very quickly they called it a fact finding thing, saying we didn't do anything wrong. They just wanted to find out what happened. Um, it lasted months. I hired lawyers. It was, it was, I was really, you know, I've never had anything like this happen. I'm a faculty, full professor in good standing. Yeah. Um, to, to have my university take this kind of slur seriously was really a shock to me. Um, and uh, during that, during that, they, they, you know, they, they, they questioned basically everything. I, I uh, during the summer, I wrote a piece, I'll show you here, on the futility of contact tracing, because if you have a highly infectious respiratory virus, contact tracing is really useful if you can t identify easily who gave it to you. It, you're not, the disease isn't spreading rapidly. I wrote this piece saying, look, if you have a disease like this, this is contact tracing is not going to work to stop right. the spread, spread of it. It just seemed like a reason, I mean, just a, such an easy thing. It turned out to be correct. Now, everyone understands the contact tracing programs didn't do very much um, in, in retrospect, but at the time, this was somewhat a controversial thing. This is published in September, but I wrote it in July, and I gave some public appearances about uh, on this in, yeah. in July and August 2020. This was part of their investigation. Why did I talk about contact tracing in this negative way? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm a faculty member. I thought I had academic freedom. And yet Stanford treated my uh, my professional opinion about the about about the uh, whether contact tracing is useful as something that to, to investigate me over. They investigated the study, knowing full well that the study was funded appropriately. That we weren't there was no conflict of interest in this in, the, in how the study was funded. Yeah, what's uh, the implication that you know the founder of JetBlue, who's no longer involved in the company on a daily operational budget, that somehow this will redound to his benefit, and 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 that you knew who who funded your research and in a pooled set of donations to what the third well wealthiest campus uh, by endowment size in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's preposterous. It was, it, was, it, was, it was truly a shocking thing. I mean, as I said, I hired lawyers. It was, it was, I was again, filled with it. It was just, it was a very anxious summer. Actually, I have to say like at the end of it, um, uh, even before the end of it, I had come to terms with this. I was like, okay, I'm going to, this is just the way life is going to be. I have to just accept that basically everything I say is going to be seen in this like, um, this conspiracy field, field uh, kind of filled kind of uh, uh, way instead of like my, the, the, the good faith method, the good faith in which I meant it. Like if we'd found, for instance, that COVID was, 3.4% mortality rate, I would have reported that. I wanted to know the truth. I really yeah, desperately yeah. wanted to know that number because right. the, 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 the right policy depends on knowing that number. Um, uh, John Yanidis organized a group that he wanted to like, he, he wrote to President Trump's uh, and, and said, look, look uh, you, you, uh, I want to offer you the, uh, uh, some outside scientific help. And he organized a group of scientists to, to, to go visit with President Trump, including people who were mo uh, in, very much in favor of the 
lockdowns. Mm -hmm. That group included both pro and anti-lockdown scientists. He wanted to give President Trump a full view of what the scientific range of opinion was about, about COVID. Um, it's definitely made it into a big deal. Yeah. As if somehow it was like weird that scientists would want to go inform policymakers on this key scientific question, presenting fairly what the range of scientific opinion was. And like an elite, elite group of scientists, at least he compliments you, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> I just, the whole thing was just, uh, and then, then uh, this is after this, she wrote a piece after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration about how we were calling for herd immunity, which is such nonsense. Um, like, you know, uh, well, let, let me tell that story in just a bit. All right. Um, so there was a now uh, there were a hundred of these seroprevalence studies that were done. They all basically said the same thing. Uh, and the, the the key thing is not even the death rate itself, but the spread in age as a risk factor of the as a death rate. Mm. Right. So you have like for for kids, the survival rate is like really 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 high, ninety nine point nine nine nine. I mean, just a very large, very very high number, pretty close to one hundred percent. For older people, it's quite a deadly disease. You know, especially in nursing homes, institutional so seventy and up, 94.5 percent survival. That's that's a low survival rate for a single infectious disease. Um, and it, and in fact, that's come to pass. Like that, that's the predictions of these studies. Eighty uh, percent of the deaths have been people over sixty-five yeah. worldwide, right? And for for kids, um, it's it's likely that even even before we had the vaccines, it was less damaging than the flu for, for kids. Um, the lockdowns right. on the for the kids is a really bad thing. Uh, so I, I think uh, it's one of these things where like I just I don't know what to say. It was just it was shocking. Um, but the, scientifically, it was quite quite nice. We had a replication of our of our, of our finding in real time it, within within a year. We knew that we were right mm. from a hundred other studies. Mm -hmm. um, now let me tell you the story of this Great Barrington Declaration. Did you um, get an apology from Stephanie? No, no. She still she still thinks we're bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, I think it's just really hard to do science in the, in this kind of environment. And you'd think science writers would try to make science easier to do, not harder. But that's not what happened during the pandemic. Um, so the Great Barrington Declaration. Well, we, uh, that was a thing that I wrote in October 2020 with. Uh, Martin Kuldorf, who's on the left over here, and and Sunetra Gupta, we wrote this wrote this thing because we what we wanted to do is we this was aimed at the public. It wasn't less aimed at scientists. We wanted to tell the public at the time it was like there's we could see another lockdown was coming. We knew that there was going to be another wave of cases, and that people were going to react with there's a lockdown. There was a sense there was an there was this illusion of consensus that everyone all reasonable scientists were in favor of a lockdown. But what we wanted to do is we want to tell the public no, there are reasonable scientists that disagreed with the lockdown policy. Right. Reasonable scientists with credentials. So we wrote this for it's like a one-page document. Tens of thousands of scientists signed on, epidemiologists signed on, almost a million people signed on. Um, and the idea was uh, we set this. The idea of the, the Great Barrington Declaration is that is we advocated for focused protection of older people. Those are the ones who are at high risk. Move heaven and earth to protect them. At the same time, the lockdowns are hurting young, younger people. Um, I'll show you some evidence on this in a second. But uh, like in poor countries, the lockdowns, essentially what we did is we disrupted trade ties. In poor countries where, where the poorest people live, it's the, the pointy end of that policy is that they lose their jobs. Two dollars a day or less of income, they go into dire poverty. They they starve. Their kids starve. Um, and, and and our kids in, the, in richer countries, you stop schooling for even a short time. That has long long term consequences on their lives. They're less well educated, so that means they're going to be poorer their whole lives. They're going to live, live be less healthy, and they're going to live less long. We robbed our kids of life years with this school closure policy that we adopted. Mm. And so the lockdowns we thought were quite harmful for for uh, for the less on net harmful for net less vulnerable people for all for, for more vulnerable people. Um, you want to move heaven and earth to protect them focus protection. That's what the Great Branch Declaration was. And we uh, we wrote this 
as an alternative to like letting it letting the virus rip. We're not calling for letting the virus go everywhere. We wanted to protect older people from this uh, from the virus. Uh, but we also thought the lockdown policy was a mistake. Uh, it, we wrote it on October fourth, twenty twenty. Within days, tens of thousands of scientists signed on. Better protection for older, high risk people. Young adults may live near normal lives as best you can to avoid to minimize the collateral damage from the lockdowns. Let kids play with their friends. Let them go to school. Let them have something close to a normal life. Yeah. Uh, or else we're going to harm them. Um, <laughs> okay. Now I was much more emotionally prepared for this because I'd already been through the fire in uh, April and, and the summer of 2020. Um, so I knew there was going to get attacks, but I didn't know was who was going to attack. Mm. Four days after he wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, um, this is Francis Collins. He's the head of the National Institute of Health. Uh, just to give some context to your listeners, someone like uh, uh, Francis Collins plays a pivotal role in the careers of biomedical research scientists. Um, he, he sits on top of tens of billions of dollars of money that goes to biomedical research in the U.S. and elsewhere. But it's more than that. In order to get tenure at a place like Stanford University Medicine, you basically need to have an NIH grant. It's a signifier of success. It's like it's like you, it's like an NSF grant, maybe in 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 bio, yeah. in, in, uh, in cosmology or something. I mean, yeah. I just I just don't. I you know, I just the, the equivalent is hard to say, but it's really quite important in the social status of scientists in biomedicine. He wrote this email four days after he wrote the Great Branch Declaration, and let me just read it to you. Um, uh, hi, Tony and Cliff. Tony, uh, Cliff. Uh, Tony is Tony Fauci. Yeah. Francis Collins writing to Tony Fauci. Uh, see, uh, this, this is the Great Barrington Declaration site. This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, mind you, um, with the secretary, secretary of HHS, seems to be getting a lot of attention, even a co-signature from a Nobel Prize winner, Mike Levitt at Stanford. I mean, you know it's fringe because a Nobel Prize winner signed on, if I understand oh, yeah. correctly. From, um, uh, there needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of his premises. I don't see anything like that online yet. Is it underway? Uh, I started getting calls from reporters almost immediately asking, why did I want to let the virus rip? Why did I want to kill grandma? What was wrong with me to, to suggest to suggest uh, that this fringe idea? Uh, New York Times wrote this ba basically a hit piece, a really quite unfair hit piece, essentially saying uh, and the, and the, the idea was that you couldn't you couldn't do focus protection. It's impossible to protect it. You can you can lock down everyone, keep everyone safe, but you couldn't keep old people safe. But that's crazy. It's actually not true. Uh, Sweden had actually followed up after a disaster in Stockholm in early in the pandemic. They followed a, a, a policy of focus protection that after that disaster actually did manage to keep a lot of their older population safe. Uh, uh, you know, Trump wants to try for herd immunity. Without a vaccine, it could kill millions. Um, these are fellow scientists writing this. Uh, I mean, it was it was truly because Michelle Walensky is the co-author. Yeah, the CDC director, the now current CDC director. Um, the the, uh, the what I wanted was a conversation among public health officials to say how should we protect vulnerable older people. It's going to be very different in LA County, you know, versus in you know Billings, Montana, or something. You need local public health to weigh in, who understand the living circumstances of the older population where they are, and devise local policies. For for uh, that are that are sort of tailored for the the local po population. That's what should have happened. A detailed conversation. Instead, you had this crazy idea that we we're trying for herd. It doesn't make any scientific sense. Herd immunity is the end point of this pandemic. I mean, that's just how the other coronaviruses are controlled. The other coronaviruses, you have a sufficient fraction of the population that have had it. You can have it again. Um, it, it doesn't protection doesn't last forever. But it's but you get this decoupling of cases from deaths. That's what herd immunity looks right. like. For and isn't lockdown of everybody implicit in that lockdown of elderly people? So why yeah. why would it be harder to lock down fewer people than to lock down more people? I mean, we weren't even calling for a lockdown. We were looking. Uh, I'm not even saying lockdown. Just like yeah, uh, but I absolutely, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It made no logical sense other than to say uh, other than that just they didn't like us or something. Fringe epidemiologists, we were trusted colleagues. 
saying, look, there's, there's not a consensus here. Want to and I were in uh, Galileo's house, his final uh, uh, house slash uh, imprisonment location. And we both remarked, you know, it wasn't a bad place to do a, a you know, couple of years stint as a prisoner, you know, compared to that. I think Jeffrey Epstein would have loved to trade places. Um, but while we were there, you know, we couldn't help think about, well, what did Galileo face? You know, when he is facing, you know, a modern day, uh, you know, a latter day version, earlier day version of an inquisition. And I'm actually calling this episode a scientific inquisition because there's so many, uh, I don't think a general, as you say, uh, you're tenured, you know, you're, you have multiple degrees all from Stanford, uh, your career, you know, and I'm not minimizing because you had huge uh, repercussions to your career. I mean, you could have been uh, terminated. You, you have health insurance, you have all sorts of things that you depend on your career for and you should, and you have every right to, uh, but there are younger people on all of these articles and younger people doing good science. Now they are tainted with this, uh, with this scarlet letter F, um, not for Fauci, but for, uh, but for uh, fringe. And that's devastating. And I don't even think the, the, the results can be known. I, I don't even think it's knowable. I, I don't think Francis is going through and uh, putting his finger on the scale of every uh, proposal. But when you say, is there a coordinated, you know, it's a conspiracy. I mean, it's, that's the definition of a conspiracy, right? People breathing together is what it means. And uh, breathing here to, you know, coordinate with the uh, with the you know number one uh, person in, in the world uh, who is the face of this pandemic and leading the marshaling of resources. Uh, now his uh, his uh, you know, his quotes are accurate, but will not be appreciated by the White House. Um, yeah, I mean he's he's calling us fringe epidemiology. I mean it's just such an irresponsible use of his power, Brian. It's such an irresponsible use of his power. If he didn't agree with us, he could say why he didn't agree with us. Not calling for. I mean they use the press to attack us, to to smear us, to to essentially to, to push us to the fringe. And why? Because they wanted to create this illusion that they actually was a scientific consensus when there actually wasn't one. Right. Uh, and, know, and by the months. way, I I don't remember you know millions not dying, Jay. I remember I I think the death. I remember the very vividly the front page of the New York Times with a hundred thousand names very powerful, very moving. Uh, we're up to 10 times that. I haven't seen any, you know, full issues of the Washington Post with everybody's name on it. Why is that? I mean, this this it just this got linked up in politics really na- very quickly, didn't it? Um, and, uh, you know, Tony Fauci, I think, worked to undermine President Trump. There's just no other way to put it. Um, and I, I just, that's unfortunate. He's a scientific advisor. He's not supposed to take political sides. Um, and he did. Right. They're talking about how they're going to manipulate the White House. They were scared about us because not because of of, of, of anything other of like we were right or wrong. They were scared of us because they were afraid the illusion of consensus that they had, that they were the science. They knew what the scientific thing to do was, um, had been shattered. You have Nobel Prize winners. You have uh, uh, your doctors and, and epidemiologists from from Stanford, Harvard, Oxford saying, look, no, we don't. We disagree. That should be a call to scientific discussion, not a call for devastating takedowns. Yeah. And um, then have it, yeah, tacitly, what you say is absolutely correct. I mean, it's chilling, you know, to think about that. I want every scientist who's watching, imagine your research proposal. And we have people in my field, by the way, Jay, that claim they're being censored by the big cosmology and NASA. And there are, there are people that propose, you know, flat earth uh, observatories. And, and so, okay, so there has to be some level, but just every scientist, and I have many, and many of the Nobel Prize winners that have been on the show um, and honored me by, by coming on, they're, they're watching this right now. Just imagine, you know, your next proposal, whether it's to your university, whether it's to your, um, you know, to your funding agency. Imagine just to forget about the politics, just that the, the grant director thinks of you as a fringe, as a, as a, as a nutcase, as a, as a crank that not only, you know, it, it wasn't that you need to be ignored or, you know, or we need to bring the scientific fact. No, that you're a crackpot and you need to be taken down. 
Um, I don't care what branch of science you pursue. I, I think it's I think it's it's really quite chilling. And the fact that that they're still in position, even though, you know, let's say they were right. I, I don't think that they were right, but let's say they were to do this and have it revealed via these uh, really damning messages. I think that they're, they're, they're they shouldn't be fit to serve in, in this capacity. And I, I'm sure that's controversial to say, but that they're still there and that they're retiring and they're going to get their benefits and so forth. Uh, I think scientists should be outraged about the way you were treated. Well, I, th I think I think they abdicated their, their, the, the, the responsibility they had to, to treat the power they were they were honored with um, to treat it responsibly. Right. So if if you if, if you're in that position, Brian, what you would do is you would bring me in and have a discussion with me. And, and you, you know, if it, let's say you disagreed with me, you'd say why. And uh, if, it, if it made sense, we'd like air our differences publicly on, on the substance of it. You're not going to use like what happens when Tony Fauci does this is a sense. You're absolutely right. Just sends a signal to all the other scientists in biomedicine that if you step out of line, you know, if a Tony Fauci says, I am the science, you know, if, if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with science itself. If you step out of line, your career is at stake. That is that's just shocking, right? So I, it's yeah, you're right. There needs to be obviously some some level of, of of gatekeeping. You don't you don't want every crank idea, but this was not a crank idea. These were prominent people in respected institutions stay saying, look, this is this policy is wrong. Yeah. And in retrospect, the policy was wrong. The disease spread everywhere. We still also got the collateral damage from it. Um, I, I think um, it's it's just an irresponsible use of power. And yeah. I agree with you. I, I don't I don't I don't understand. Uh, and it, 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 it frankly. I, it shocked me because I respected, deeply respected Francis Collins and yeah. Tony Fauci before the pandemic. I yeah. still have a textbook from Tony Fauci that I, that I learned internal medicine from. Hmm. Um, and Francis Collins, you know, he's he's a, he's a very prominent Christian in yeah. and also a prominent scientist who did amazing work with the Human Genome Project. Yeah, it, it saddens me to have to, to to say negative things about him. I re still respect. I can't help but respect him deeply. Um, Let me ask you a couple of other questions. I know your your time is very limited, but uh, there's a couple of you know big picture questions I want to ask you if you have. Uh, Five more minutes left, Jay. Sure. Yeah. First one is, um, uh, you know, revolves around uh, the recent um, op-ed you wrote in Newsweek. Where, where do you see things going? Um, uh, you know, in with with President Biden, um, do you think there'll be a shift after the midterm elections? You feel like uh, the policy uh, is, is sort of we've reached a point where we're coming to the as you, you know people are saying even uh, Joe Biden said that you know COVID is the pandemic is over, but we're still dealing. I, I don't know. He said something like that. Um, where, where do you see that going? And then I want to ask you about this amnesty proposal, and then we'll close out with some existential questions. So first, the Newsweek op-ed that you wrote last week. Yeah. So I think uh, whether it's Biden or somebody else, we have to, we have a choice to make. Um, there's two ways I think we can deal with with future pandemics. One is the, what we did what we did previously, which is we uh, did work to try to bring viruses from the wild into labs, play with them to see if they have pandemic potential, try to develop vaccines early, and then and then and then uh, and then try to deal with the pandemics as they come up. Try, the idea is to prevent the pandemics and if, and if they happen, um, be prepared to deal with them. It's quite likely, or certainly possible at least, to, that the, the pandemic, this pandemic, may have been caused by that very research. If there's a lab leak, it's because somebody brought a bat virus that's very close to SARS-CoV-2 into a lab, played with it, gave it the capacity to infect humans, and it leaked accidentally. That's, that's I'm not saying that's happened for sure, but it's certainly a live hypothesis. And if that's true, the, the that strategy of dealing with pandemics will We'll have that forever with us if we if we if we if we keep keep that. Or the other path we can just say is not do that. We could we go back the old ways, and sometimes pandemics happen every 30, 40 years, and just have to try to cope with that fact. Right. Um, uh, the, the other thing though, once you have this strategy of having this 
like vaccine ready pandemic. Uh, the, the, the Biden plan says within 130 days, we'll have a vaccine and we'll send it out to the population as soon as there's a new pandemic happens. Um, the problem with that is that it takes longer to test a vaccine than 130 days. Um, you don't you need you need you know very large samples of people tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of people depending on the on the, on the sample uh, the the, uh, the statistical power um, to, to test it you want to test it for a longer period than just three months to see if it works you want to know if it stops transmission you know who, who it protects side effects and so on it's gonna take longer during that time where you wait for 130 days for the vaccine there'll be a tremendous pressure to lock down again yeah so the, the that's one path study vaccines, study, try, study these pandemic, these viruses, bring them out from the wild, maybe cause the, the pandemic, and then lock down every time we have it in, for the hopes of finding a vaccine that we hope works after 130 days. The other path is a much more restricted um, set of research to, to try to prepare for va- pandemics by general vaccine research, general antiviral research, not specific ones to, to enhance the, the capacity of, of viruses to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to infect p- humans, and not by promising 130-day effectively a vaccine program that undermines the ability to, te- to actually test vaccines appropriately and potentially undermines the trust in vaccines. I think those are the policy choices very starkly that we, we face, and whether it's President Biden or somebody else, those are the choices we're going to have to make in the next few years, I think. Yeah. And then uh, the last uh, topic before we close out has to do with this recent proposal uh, by, uh, I think, a professor and, and maybe some other colleagues uh, of, of hers. And that was uh, it's, we need a we need a period of what we call in uh, in Hebrew teshuva, repentance and, and maybe uh, forgiveness. Uh, and she called it, I think the title is amnesty. Yeah. We need a, an amnesty uh, for what we did and said, you know, in Vegas, uh, you know, shouldn't stay in Vegas. What we did and said during the, the COVID pandemic. I always love that in Vegas, you know, what, what happened, like God doesn't know what's happening there. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so God knows, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what should be done. But what, what do you make of this a call for amnesty? So uh, it's a professor, Emily Oster, who I actually was friends with before the pandemic, still friends with. I still have a deep respect for her. Yeah. Um, she, and during the pandemic, she's done some really constructive things. Like she collected data on the safety of school reopening and, and played a pretty central role in pushing for school reopening in the United States. Um, at the same time, she's called for things I, I disagreed with. Like she called for vaccine mandates, which I think were quite harmful because I think it um, bred distrust in vaccines. Um, uh, now, I, I think um, the call for amnesty is hard. I, I very strongly believe in forgiveness. Uh, I'm called to forgive. I mean, this is yeah. one of the things that my my, my religious upbringing has, has says. Like even even people that haven't asked for forgiveness, I'm, I'm supposed to I'm supposed to love my enemies, Brian. Right. Um, and so, like, how do I do that? I think uh, the way I think about this is you have to have forgiveness for people, but not for, not amnesty for systems. Right? We have to have an honest conversation about what went wrong. We have to have an honest conversation about uh, so that we can do reform so that what went wrong doesn't happen again. And that's going to it's going to bruise the egos of some people. That's inevitable. But that's how you do system reforms. I personally will work very hard in my own heart and mind to forgive those people that have harmed me. Um, and I call for everybody else to do the same. That's really we need some kind of reconciliation. A lot of mistakes happened. A lot of it was because of fear. A lot of it was because of uncertainty. And those are all understandable. Um, let's try to work with each other in that spirit. Uh, even Tony Fauci, I'm willing to forgive. Even, yeah. even Francis Collins, I'm willing to forgive. But you know, in Judaism, at least, you're you're called to forgive as well. But uh, but only on the supposition the person identifies what was done wrong, uh, recognizes, admits it was done wrong, 
and uh, and also you know reconciles with him or herself to never do it again. Um, and so only it's it's thought you know can someone's uh, honesty really be tested if they're put in the same position? And uh, unfortunately, they're very likely to be put in position. Uh, and so um, you don't have to react to that. But but no, I, I, I the thing is I think I think some people we really need a new leadership, like leadership that, that essentially abuses its, its responsibilities, um, doesn't deserve to be leaders. Right now, I don't, I don't mean that personally. I mean, it's just like, you need people in scientific leadership in, uh, that have the, uh, the capacity to do the right thing, even when it's hard. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that's true for all of our leaders. Uh, that's not the same thing as not, not forgiving them. I mean, I think there should be consequences for, for, for bad actions. Um, and that, that may include loss of leadership. Yeah. And uh, just close with a quote from uh, President Eisenhower, of course, did a lot of amazing things, including, you know, uh, starting NASA, uh, but um, and advocating against, you know, uh, the, the blind acceptance of a uh, what he called a military industrial complex. And I wonder, you know, he also said the following. Uh, he said, yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, we must also be alert to the danger that public policy could itself become captive of a scientific technological elite. And so um, I think we do need to pay pay heed to good old Ike uh, and and respect it even as and as scientists who have the most to gain under a you know benevolent dictatorship of you know our technocracy uh, theocracy replaced with scientific uh, uh, theologians high priests and priestesses we need to be careful of the power that we have you know you say science to somebody they're like oh my god you guys are so so smart and you know I always say I have to sing the alphabet song you know to know what comes after Q for God's sake okay Jay we've just, reached the final four thrilling questions of the into the impossible podcast kind of semi rapid fire but I want to ask you these questions which all my uh, wonderful guests uh, have had the opportunity to to answer and, and the first one they're basically advice to your to future generations and past uh, advice to your former self so the first one I always ask is what would you put in your ethical will not material will when you spring forth uh, the age of 120 or now you're so fit you know, I was like, the gain of function could be good. Like I lost a lot of weight when I had COVID. You know, I put it all back on since I was in Italy with you. You're forcing that carbonara pasta down on me. No, uh, but uh, but but in, in all seriousness, you know, there could be some some good uh, gain of function, just not with pathogens, please. Uh, anyway, what do you say that you want to leave in your what we call in Hebrew a zava'ah, an ethical will uh, that that Moses gave, Jacob gave, Jesus gave on, on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and Al, even Alfred Nobel has an ethical component. What ethical uh uh, provisions do you would you like to give to future generations both biological and ideological of which i count myself as one i think you've been each of us have been given gifts our gifts for a purpose intellectual gifts moral gifts um you know even even material gifts and we we need to remember that that purpose is beyond us and to use those gifts responsibly for that broader purpose. That's beautiful. Uh, the next statement comes from the namesake of the institution of which I am the associate director, Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here. And Arthur C. Clarke uh, famously said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You're a, a, a very eminent scientist. Thinking scientifically, imagine you make a monolith like uh, that in 2001, A Space Odyssey, the movie, space, and you can put anything on it that summarizes the greatest discovery not made by you, although it could be, uh, but but the greatest scientific fact imaginable to kind of have a little bit of braggadocio about what human beings are capable of. What's the most astonishing thing in your field, in any field, about our scientific universe? 
I mean, in, in my field, we can heal people with the worst diseases that were before we never imagined we could do. You have cancer. There's so many cancers we can treat now. Cure. Mm. You, you have you have uh, all these conditions that, that have plagued humanity for generations, for, 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 for millennia, um, and we can fix it. Um, we just have to we have to remember that even when we're doing that, we, do, we still can't stop you from dying altogether. Um, I mean, it's 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 amazing what we can do. We live so much longer than we once did because of science. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we have to stay humble. We still haven't conquered death. Yeah. And we probably never will. Absolutely. Uh, the next question is another quote uh, from Sir Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, he said the following, when a distinguished but elderly scientist says something is possible, they are almost certainly right. When they say something is impossible, they are very probably wrong. Uh, I'm not calling you elderly. You're, I, you're, you got the gray hair going on. It's, I use a Sharpie, so it, it keeps me uh, uh, not being as distinguished as you. Um, what have you changed your mind about? What, if anything, have, have you felt I was wrong about uh, in your in your scientific work? I think I mean just just during COVID, uh, there's been a lot of things. I, I, probably the most consequential thing I got wrong was that in March of 2020, I thought there was no way to get a vaccine in, in a year. No chance, um, because normally I, my understanding was it would take a decade to find a good, a, a, the right target for the vaccine and then quite a long time to test it, a year or more to test test the vaccine. Yeah. The fact that we could get the political and well and the scientific capacity to, to produce a vaccine so rapidly blew my mind. I'm still amazed by it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I kind of was pleased to be wrong about that. I do I do regret how the vaccine was used. I think it could have been used to for focus protection of older people. I'm very strongly in favor of that. Yeah. Um, but it also was used to divide the population, to to, 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 uh, to, to, to create shame for people who, did, who had some reservations about taking it for whatever reason, and essentially to like uh, discriminate against people. And that I think was is regret, to be regretted. But that was the social use of the vaccine, not the amazing technical achievement of, of getting the vaccine in such a short time. All right. And then the last law of Arthur C. Clarke uh, states the following. The only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the origin of the name of my podcast. I want to ask this in a phrase, a uh, form of advice to your former self. What mysterious aspect of life maybe perplexed you as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, uh, but later in moments of great clarity through inciting incidents or breakthroughs led you to become the person that you are, a person of great courage, as well as great intellect. Uh, in other words, what would you tell that 30-year-old, 20-year-old Jay to give him the courage to do as you've done to go into the impossible? You know, um, it's really easy for young people, and certainly that was true for me, to think that uh, everyone else around you, especially the older people uh, who have distinguished careers, know everything, and that they that, that they can tell you, you know, you, you're onto something or not onto something. I tell that 20 year old, a 30 year old that's that's doing science, you know, no one really has all the answers. It's not, and and if they're telling you no, it's not because they know no. They just they just you know that's the knee jerk reaction. Almost everything is wrong. Uh, you need to have some confidence in yourself. You might be right. And all of, all of the old guys around you with gray hair might be wrong. That's certainly possible. It's almost that's how science advances, Brian, uh, is when by gray hairs like me get proven wrong. Right. Um, and I think that's a really good thing. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of Stanford School of Medicine, MD, PhD, uh, health policy expert, 
so much more. Uh, this has been such a treat for me, uh, Jay. I'm going to have links to your to your Twitter uh, profile where you can follow Jay at Dr. J, letter J, Bhattacharya, and, uh, and follow him and, and tune in. And I do hope you'll share. I mean, this audience is, you know, going to going to expand your profile, you know, just so exponentially this appearance, Jay, you, you won't be able to handle it, uh, but uh, but you won't lose any weight. Maybe you'll gain some weight from this exposure, but I do hope <laughs> you'll share it in the form of a, of a memoir because it's such a remarkable story of courage under extreme fire. I mean, basically the worst situation an academic could find him or herself in that you've weathered, hopefully for good. And I wish you uh, blessings and and peace. I think that's uh, nothing good can come without the blessings of health and peace. So Jay, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. I'm so honored to know you as a friend. Thank you for the podcast. And it's a blessing for me, my friend. Take care. Take care. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. As I said, it might have sounded political at times. That's not intentional, but fact is there is a lot of politics and science nowadays and some science getting into politics. And that's potentially a disaster, as you heard me quote from none other than Ike, President Dwight David Eisenhower, one of the greatest presidents in our history. He warned of both the military industrial complex and the scientific technocracy that would take over our country potentially, ruled by a small band of theologian-like um, figures in the form of technocrats, scientists, etc. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, again, keep it to yourself or send me constructive criticism at my website, briankeating.com slash list, or you can, um, as I said, keep it to yourself because I think it's important to do this mission and I have on people of all political stripes from Democrats to anarchists to, <laughs> to people on the right. And I'll continue to do so when it intersects with my interest, which has to do with the flourishing of humanity, which I hope will take place and continue to take place. And that includes preventing future disasters like what happened with the COVID-19 lockdowns. So for now, that's it. I hope you will have, as I always say and always bid you, a magical rest of your week. <laughs>